And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. As always, I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at Gamera vs. Jiger as we continued uh, making our way through the Showa Gamera films. We also looked at Godzilla uh, on the loose, shrunk down in uh, Manhattan in Godzilla number 18 from Marvel Comics. We've got a great show for you today. We are jumping ahead from the Showa era all the way to the modern millennium era with the film Godzilla Mothra Mechagodzilla Tokyo SOS all the way from 2003. In addition, we have the next issue of Marvel Godzilla, which is number 19, continuing Godzilla's New York adventure. Uh, but before we get to that, we have a little bit of news to cover. Up first, Rampage is coming to home media here in the United States on July 17th. Digital is a couple of weeks earlier on June 26th. Uh, all the typical formats, uh, 4K Ultra HD, 3D Blu-ray, Blu-ray combo pack, DVD, the whole usual kit and caboodle. Uh, I never did not get an opportunity to see Rampage in the theater. I really wanted to. It, it didn't work out for me. So uh, I haven't seen it, but I've heard good things about it from folks whose opinions I genuine, generally uh, value when it comes to this sort of thing. And I'm a fan of both the game Rampage and of Dwayne Johnson, so it seems like it'll be up my alley, so I will probably pick this up. And uh, if I do pick it up, look forward to hearing about it here on the show at some future date. In other home media news, Ultraman USA, um, which uh, you might know as Ultraman The Adventure Begins, which was the animated Ultraman film, is being released on Blu-ray in Japan on September 26th. Now, this release will also include Ultraman The Adventure Begins, which is, as I said, the English language version. Uh, this is the film that was co-produced and distributed by Hanna-Barbera for the U.S. market, uh, with Tsuburaya obviously handling uh, everything else to production on the Japanese side. Syndication of that film began here in the U.S. in October 1987, and it was not uncommon for a while there on U.S. television markets. In fact, I think I, pr I have it, or I did have it at one point, taped off of probably Channel 11 WPIX, uh, on a, uh, a VHS tape that is, is probably upstairs in my bonus room somewhere in my house. Now, on Sci-Fi Japan, the article says that the Blu-ray disc is region-free. Now, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but if that is the case, I will have to look into that and see about importing it, because uh, while the Japanese one I doubt would have English subtitles, if it has the English language version, it would be very nice to get a official release of this film and have a, uh, you know, not not worry about it being a bootleg, even if it is a, a Japanese import Blu-ray. So uh, keep an eye, I, I will keep an eye out for that, and as I find out more information, I will pass it along here. But very neat to see a little bit of Ultra History getting a home media release on Blu-ray. Speaking of Ultraman, Ultraman 80 and Ultraman Max, 
one of which is a show, a show, and the other is a Heisei show. They are now available for streaming on Tubi TV. Uh, for those who are not familiar with Tubi TV, it is a 100% free uh, video on-demand service that is ad-supported. It has lots of movies and TV shows and actually quite a lot of anime. I'd been watching Death Note on that uh, on Tubi TV for quite a while, and that, that's actually where I've watched the majority of that series. Uh, now, these two shows are on Crunchyroll, but I find it's always good to have options. You never know when certain things going to go away. So if you're, uh, for whatever reason, can't use Crunchyroll, it's not available in your area, give it a try at uh, Tubi TV, either on their app or their website, which is TubiTV.com, T-U-B-I-T-V.com. Uh, it's, uh, as I said, it's free with ads. So to me, that that's a fair trade-off. Video quality is, is pretty good. And these are English soft subs, so they're not hard subbed on. So if you just want to watch them in Japanese, you can do that as well. You can turn the closed captioning off, and that will turn off the subtitles. So uh, be sure to check that out if, um, if you would like to watch some old-school Ultraman. Even more old-school, or even more obscure old-school, I should say, Redman. Now, you might be thinking, you mean the rapper? No, I don't mean the rapper Redman. I mean the giant hero Redman, who was a character from segments on an old Japanese daily children's show uh, called Ohio Kodomo Show. And Redman was an alien who fought various monsters across 138 five-minute segments of this show. Now, now, having said that, the character Redman is being revitalized for a new comic series in Japan that is being published as an OGN here in the States. This comic is by Matt Frank, who you will probably recognize as uh, one of the creators of various IDW Godzilla comics, and uh, Goncalo Lopez, who is an artist I'm not familiar with. Now, if you go to nightshininginc.com slash redman, so night, N-I-G-H-T, shining, Inc. like incorporated, inc.com slash redman, you can order the uh, um, the original graphic novel plus other merchandise for Redman. This looks very neat. Uh, Redman didn't really have much of a story, per se, so they're kind of fleshing out the character who is this, uh, you know, very aggressive monster-hunting character and uh, putting a new spin on it in the comics. I'm going to be checking this out. Uh, I'm not really sure what to expect. I've never... I've only now seen a few segments of Redman, and it's very much a stripped-down, you know, hero-fighting monster show. There's not any plot, really, so I'm not sure what to expect, but it does look pretty cool. So uh, please check that out, and I will put this link in the show notes so that everyone can uh, can jump over and check it out as well. In Gaiden news, uh, I'm a little late on this one, but the three Toho vampire films from the 1970s, which were The Vampire Doll... Lake of Dracula and Evil of Dracula are now available on Blu-ray from Arrow Video under the title The Bloodthirsty Trilogy. This is a collection of the three films across two discs. This is the first time that these have been released here on home media in the U.S. There may have been uh, there may have been a VHS release at some point of Lake of Dracula or Evil of Dracula, but they are long since out of print. This is the first time you can get them in digital format. Uh, this looks really neat. I've not seen any of these. I heard that they're crazy, kind of insane horror films. I remember reading a uh, review in the Kaiju Review long ago, uh, back in high school, about Lake of Dracula, and it's sounding absolutely insane. So I'm definitely going to be picking these up. Uh, Arrow Video does a really good job there. They're kind of like Shout Factory. They do a lot of these... Uh, 
kind of fanish genre releases, so I'm sure they'll do a good job on this. Uh, check it out on Amazon. It's like 32 bucks or something like that for the three movies on Blu-ray. That's a pretty good deal where I come from. I, that, uh, you know, I don't mind paying 10 bucks for a, a movie that's not ever had a release any other, uh, in any other format here in the States. So be sure to check that out. Uh, and again, hopefully we can cover these in a future Gaiden episode, uh, since they're not really giant monster related, but still Toho, so they still fit. And one last note, Godzilla City on the Edge of Battle is coming very, very soon to Netflix here in the United States. In fact, as you are hearing this, it may have already been released. As I am recording it, it was announced initially for the week of June 15th, uh, but that has come and gone as I'm recording this, and it has not appeared on Netflix. That apparently was the early release for critics to be able to see it, that they released it early uh, in several, uh, f uh, I guess, platforms so that critics could watch it to write their reviews. But, um, so the follow-up to Godzilla Planet of Monsters, the second installment of the Godzilla anime, is going to be on Netflix, so that will be a little bit of uh, Godzilla stuff to watch over the summer. Very much looking forward to that. And you may hear more coverage of both um, Planet of Monsters and City on the Edge of the Battle right here on Earth Destruction Directive, so keep your ears uh, pinned back and had attention for that and just in case that comes up uh, that's all i've got if you have any news anything related to what we talk about here on earth destruction directive please go ahead and send it in earth destruction directive at yahoo.com and i will talk about it and give you credit here on the show uh, but for now we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back getting into godzilla mothra mechagodzilla tokyo sos you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more, bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla, Mothra, Mechagodzilla, Tokyo, SOS, uh, got its theatrical release on December 14th, 2003 in Japan. This was on a double feature with the Hamtaro movie, Hamtaro Ham Ham Grand Prix, which, uh, near as I can tell, unfortunately, did not get released over here. And, of course, like all the Millennium films other than Godzilla 2000, this never had a U.S. release. Our director is Masaki Tezuka. Our writers are credited as Masaki Tezuka and Masahiro Yokotani. Our music is by Mishiro Oshina. Our special effects are by Ichi Asada. And our producer is Shogo Tomiyama. And our synopsis today is adapted from Gojipedia, which you can find at godzilla.wikia.com. In 2004, Kiru was undergoing extensive repairs following his battle against Godzilla the previous year. Mothra's twin fairies warned their old friend, Dr. Shinichi Chujo, that using the first Godzilla's bones as the basis for Kiru was wrong, and that the taking of the original Godzilla's bones is what brought him back. And if they don't return them to the sea, then Mothra will declare war on humanity. They say that if the original Godzilla's bones are returned, however, 
Mothra will protect Japan from the current Godzilla. Dr. Chujo brings this to the attention of the Prime Minister, but the PM's hands are tied and he refuses to scrap the Mechagodzilla project. Soon the giant remains of the monstrous turtle Kamiobis are found washed up on the shore, and before long Godzilla, sporting a scarred chest from the previous battle, once again lands in Japan, headed straight for Kiru. Mothra intercepts Godzilla but cannot overcome him as the two battle back and forth. Kiru, repaired and sporting a new triple Mazer cannon in place of the absolute zero cannon, is deployed to help and evens the odds. However, Godzilla manages to knock out both Kiru and Mothra. Meanwhile, on Himago Island, a pair of twin larvae hatch from Mothra's egg and rush to Japan to help their mother. While Yoshido Chujo, chief mechanic and Dr. Chujo's nephew, rushes to repair Kiru, Mothra's larvae try to hold off Godzilla, and in the process, Mothra sacrifices herself to protect her children bursting into a moth-shaped fireball. Just in time, Yoshido manages to repair Kiru, but is trapped inside the machine as it faces off against its flesh-and-blood rival once more. They grapple, and Kiru lands a powerful hit on Godzilla, stabbing him in the chest with a drill mounted on his right arm. Weakened by the attack, Godzilla roars in agony, and the larvae bind him up in silk. However, instead of killing Godzilla off for good, Kiru chooses instead to pick up the battle-weary, trussed-up Godzilla and carry him off to sea. Thanks to his timely assistance from one of Kiru's pilots, Asuza Kisaragi, Yoshido escapes and the two monsters plunge into the ocean together and sink beneath the waves into the Japanese trench. A post-credit sequence shows that the government still has more samples of Godzilla DNA harvested from 1954 and that new experiments are still taking place. All right, um, bit of an uh, you know kind of a, a interesting film here. It's it's kind of unique among a lot of its Millennium uh, series cohorts. It does some things uh, very different from the rest of that series. So uh, why don't we get right into the notes? Now Tokyo SOS is a direct sequel to the previous film, which is Godzilla X Mechagodzilla, uh, known as Godzilla Against Mechagodzilla in wide um, wide home media release here in the United States. This is the only Millennium film to be in continuity with its immediate predecessor. All the Millennium films include some of the Showa films, at least the original Godzilla. Some of them include a few others. Uh, but this is the only one that's a direct sequel. Now this is a bit odd, of course, because the Showa films sort of, kind of had a loose continuity, but not really. A few of them, specifically, ironically enough, the two Mechagodzilla ones are sequels to each other. And then the Heisei films, obviously, were all part of the same series and had decently tight continuity but, uh, across the films, but the Millennium films abandoned that, so it was interesting to see uh, a direct sequel. And we'll talk a bit about more, a bit more about this at the end of the notes where we talk about that post-credit sequence. Now, the story is credited uh, to uh, the director, Masaki Tezuka, and Masahiro uh, Yogatani, as I said. Now, Toho commissioned several scripts to be written for the film, but evidently, Tezuka did not like any of them. And so, the story goes that he put together a treatment, essentially overnight, for what he wanted to do with the, the, the follow-up to his earlier film, and Toho approved it. And so that was, um, and then it was fleshed out into a full script. So that's how he ended up getting a, a writer's credit on this. Now, as we get into the movie, our first sequence involves Kiru uh, being repaired after the battle with Godzilla from the previous year. And if uh, there's a Mechagodzilla being repaired, you know what that means. Gantries. That's right. There are gantries and platforms 
all around Mechagodzilla, and you guys know how much I love gantries around a giant robot in a Toho movie. So right out of the bat, I'm already hooked because it's got gantries going on. As kind of the prologue begins, we cut to uh, Hickam Air Force Base, which is actually in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And it really looks like they're using either stock footage or maybe just some B-roll pickup footage of the outside of Hickam Air Force Base. Uh, they don't, uh, the inside is clearly a set and the actors they've got speaking English are really, really poorly speaking English. But Toho has long had a history of not particularly caring about how the English sounds in their movies uh, from uh, Western actors. So that's not really surprising. I just thought it was neat that we got to see the actual Hickam Air Force Base. Uh, you know, it's a Pacific movie, so why not include that? In addition to having the trope of using gantries on a giant robot, uh, this film also uses a news uh, broadcast to recap the events of the previous film and to get everybody up to speeding, just in case you didn't see that one. So, again, this is, um, you know, something they would do sometimes in the Heisei films, but here in the Millennium films, they never really had to do it much because, you know, there was no previous continuity to keep up with other than, oh, Godzilla attacked in 1954 or whatever. So here it makes sense to do it. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's not, you know, I mean, obviously having seen it, we know what the story is, but it's not so intrusive as to be ridiculous. Um, you could theoretically just watch this one, although, again, with two films so tightly tied together, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So very quickly in the film, we're introduced to Dr. Shinichi Chujo and the Shobajin. And this is one of the very interesting things about this film, is that in addition to being a sequel to Godzilla x Mechagodzilla, it is also a sequel to the original Mothra from 1960, to the point that uh, Dr. Chujo is, once again, portrayed by Hiroshi Kozumi, as he was in the original film. So I, I like that because one of the things that was established in Godzilla x Mechagodzilla is that while the, the other Showa Godzilla films did not happen, the other Showa non-Godzilla films did happen. They specifically reference Mothra, and then they reference uh, War of the Gargantuas, and later on this film they reference Space Amoeba, a.k.a. Yogg, Monster from Space. So it kind of makes sense that uh, Professor Ch or Dr. Chujo would still be kicking around. And then the Shobajin, they're, um, the, it's interesting, is that they describe themselves as um, that, that the ones that the, Dr. Chujo interacted with in 1960 were fairies from our family. Not specifically the same pair of Shobajin, but it is uh, a, a, a relatives of the Shobajin from the original, which it does, you know, since obviously the, uh, you know, the, the Peanuts are not portraying them here, it, it makes sense to do that since they look different, but they're, they obviously their interaction with, uh, the, the doctor has been passed down through oral tradition. And so they, they, you know, clearly they know who, who, who he is. Um, they are, uh, the first time we see them, they are standing on a table in, uh, the doctor's house. They are blue screen inserted on the table. It looks okay on the, uh, the DVD, the visuals on this DVD are not great to begin with, so it looks a little rough, but, you know, that's how they would have done that in 2003. We're not going to get it like it was in the 60s where they were going to do an optical uh, or have them interacting on a giant set. So uh, it's okay. It, it works well for the film, even though it's clearly, uh, the, the, the process of how they do it is pretty clearly obvious. The conversation with Dr. Chujo and his nephews um, has to do a little bit of rejiggering with the continuity uh, as far as the events portrayed in Mothra. They, they do say that Mothra destroyed Tokyo, which is true the, in, in a sense because the, you know, the larva version of Mothra did go through Tokyo and tear down Tokyo Tower. 
But there is no mention of Rosilica or Newkirk City, which is where a lot of the uh, monster destruction effects in the original Mothra are set, obviously, in the analog for uh, the United States and New York City. But, you know, again, considering that this film and its predecessor are, you know, very strongly trying to present themselves as being a real-world sort of story, having a fictional country in there probably would have stood out as been a little silly, you know, even given the events of a Godzilla film. So I'm willing to let that slide, but it does, it you know, it takes a little bit of kind of hand-waving at it uh, so that we don't, we don't think about it too much. And I think it's helped by the fact, for me anyway, that I did just see um, we just covered Mothra last year, and then, of course, the Rift Tracks of Mothra was last year, so it's relatively fresh in my mind. I probably, in fact, I want to say that when I first watched this, it had been several years since I had watched the original Mothra, and I didn't necessarily remember uh, that detail, but, you know, hey, it, it, it is what it is, and it's close enough for, for what we need in the film, and it's not wrong. Mothra did destroy Tokyo, so that part of the of the dialogue is still true. The scene has a reference as well to uh, Godzilla versus the Thing, Mothra versus Godzilla, Godzilla from 1964, where we see the uh, Imago form of Mothra sitting up on a hill and all the heroes come and look at it, and then she flies away. This is a direct reference, of course, to a similar scene uh, when the heroes realize that the adult Mothra is in Japan uh, from 1964. The Mothra model, it has fur. Uh, very clearly has fur. It vaguely reminds me more of the 1960 look than the 1964 look or any of the later ones. Uh, I think that's more because of the color. It's uh, She is portrayed much more white uh, than yellow. I always think of the 1964 Mothra being kind of that yellowish color. Part of that, of course, was the print, the American prints, but that that's just the color that she was, whereas the original I always think of more as white. Um, it's uh, the, mo the, the model also has articulated legs, which is really nice. They're not just static like they were in the Heisei edition. The wings move pretty nicely. They have some sway to them, and that by that I mean when the wings flap, you can see their actual motion of the wings. They're a flexible material. They're not static or sturdy looking, where they just flap up and down, um, kind of like, uh, you know, we saw that sometimes in, in the Showa era, or even like King Ghidorah's wings are shown just to flap as a, as a static uh, wing. It's not, there's no flexibility in the actual wing membrane or anything like that. The model looks pretty nice. I, I think it's a well-executed um, iteration of Mothra. And I mean, we had just gotten a, a new version of Mothra two years earlier in GMK, and we're going to get another iteration of Mothra in the film that follows this. So there's a lot of Millennium Mothras to kind of compare it to, but I think this one is one of the better ones. Back over to Kiru, we find out that the main gun that this thing had the last time, the Absolute Zero system, is gone. And uh, one of the, one of the uh, lead engineers says they need a massive diamond in order to power it, and as soon as they can get that massive diamond, they can install this Absolute Zero system and be ready to go the next day. Uh, besides being uh, an amusing uh, bit of dialogue, this reminded me directly of the artificial diamond which was used to create the fire mirror back in Godzilla vs. Biolanti. There's something about giant diamonds uh, that work well in, I guess, weapon systems on anti-Godzilla uh, mecha. So that, uh, I guess it's because that's not something that you can easily create or easily find, so it's a good, rare um, commodity to make uh, your weapon out of so that you can't easily replace it once Godzilla breaks it. I did think it was a bit odd that after they made such a big deal out of the Absolute Zero cannon in the previous film, it is, it, it's dismissed here, and the Hyper Mazer cannon that replaces it is not on the same level 
as a pure weapon of mass destruction, like the Absolute Zero Cannon is. I mean, the, if you remember in Godzilla X Mechagodzilla, the, the Absolute Zero Cannon was portrayed as this awful, awful thing. And the Hypermaser Cannon here is kind of just an afterthought so that he has a, a big main gun mounted in his chest. So that, that's disappointing that Tezuka doesn't, you know, follow up on it other than kind of giving us a downgraded version of the weapon, uh, from the previous film and not using, using it in the story at all unlike the previous film. In Kiru's base, we get introduced to our younger main characters. Uh, this is Yoshido, who is uh, Dr. Chujo's nephew and the chief mechanic. Akiba, who is the pilot and a real jerk. He's a typical, you know, arrogant pilot, hot jock, um, hot shot, rocket jock type. And Asuza, who is one of the, she is a co-pilot, and it's clear that um, you know, Yoshido's got a, a little bit of a thing for her, and she seems to have something for uh, Yoshido. But, you know, Yoshido, I feel kind of bad for him in this. He can't win for losing because he's pulled in all these different directions. You know, he has his sense of duty uh, to repair and maintain Kiru, and he feels a lot of pride in that. He's, you know, uh, he, he's really good at his job. But then he's got, you know, his uncle telling him that, no, we have to shut down the project and, uh, you know, throw Godzilla's bones back in the sea. And, you know, then he's got uh, Asuza who's given him grief because he's only interested in in machines and not, you know, doesn't pursue her. It's like, what? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. At one point, Asuza actually says to him, you that uh, Yoshido, you love only machines. And, you know, my first thought was Jack Bond, you know, loyal listener, Jack Bond. I'm, I'm sorry that that was uncalled for. But, you know, Jack does love his mecha. So, you know, but Yoshido, he's the main character and he's pulled in all these different directions. So you. You would think that we'd feel sympathetic for him, but he's he's kind of just waffles on all of it. He never, I mean, he commits a lot mostly just to being the mechanic. That's the one he chooses. So he's not a supremely sympathetic character, despite his relatively sympathetic setup. Uh, in fact, while at the base, we run into Akane Yashiro, who you'll remember was the main character from Godzilla X Mechagodzilla. She, she was the MG pilot who started out as a Mazer tank operator, and they had that horrible... Uh, incident during Godzilla landing that uh, she ended up getting uh, a lot of her um, teammates killed. And that was kind of GXMG was as much her story as Kiru's about her redemption. Uh, it's a nice continuity gut nod. Unfortunately, she's gone way too fast. She's really in just, she's ref basically she and the rest of her pilots are going on an, uh, a training uh, a exchange to the United States. And so they're having a little bit of like a reception for them. And then she runs into Yoshido uh, in the bay with, uh, with Kiru, but she's only in the movie for about five minutes, all told. Uh, now, uh, the, the, it's one of those things I've often said that, you know, you should never in your film remind your audience of a different, better film they could be watching instead. And Akane is a much more complex and interesting character than anyone in this film. So it's kind of, you know, it's hard to put her out there. Uh, at one point she says that Kiru doesn't want to fight. Which is interesting because, well, again, a lot of GXMG was her connection with Kiru and the two of them kind of forming a bit of a bond. And Yoshido counters this with, well, Kiru never finished the job. And it's, it's very odd because Tezuka does not seem all that interested in exploring this characterization in the film, which was really the strength of the previous film. Now, again, the previous film wasn't perfect, but that was what I thought was the strongest point of it was the characterization of the humans. Whereas here, Tezuka seems to just want to get to the action as fast as possible. So the, the portrayals of our human cast are just not that interesting. And that, that's really one of the, one of the, the real strong downsides of this film that I found during this watch through. 
Speaking of getting to the action, we uh, go from here to the discovery of the carcass of Cameobus on the on the beach. Uh, Cameobus, of course, doesn't get to move, being dead, but it is a nice update of the big extending neck turtle that we saw in Space Amoeba, a.k.a. Yogg Monster from Space from 1970. What's interesting is that there is dialogue that name-checks Dr. Mio and Selgio Island, which are uh, one of the characters and the setting from Space Amoeba. So it's not just a, it is specifically the events of Space Amoeba and not just a random Cameobus. Now, the story that I have always heard is that this role of this dead monster washed up on the beach was originally going to be Angurus. And that Toho said, no, you can't kill Angurus. That will make fans very upset because Angurus, though, uh, despite being not exactly a draw money-wise, is a very popular monster with the fan base and that if they killed Angurus, this was going to uh, really upset some viewers. So they subbed in Cameobus. And I have to agree, this is a good call. While it would have been neat to see a Millennium version of Angurus, since we were denied seeing a Millennium version of the character in uh you know what what ended up being gmk i agree having him been dead would have been a poor choice for one of their most beloved kind of secondary heroic monsters so good call on that one and it is neat to get cameos because it does give an opportunity to bring in uh space amoeba whereas with angurus you know the only films that angurus appears in he never appeared on his own so it's like okay well did, does that mean uh godzilla raids again is in continuity or does that mean that destroy all monsters or Godzilla versus Gigan. So it makes more sense from the type of world that they've established in these two films to have it be Cameobus rather than Angurus. After the discovery of the corpse of Cameobus, we get a, a scene of uh, Godzilla fighting the Navy out at sea. A very typical Toho stuff, which they are very efficient at uh, putting together and shooting. There is nothing uh, different or unique about this scene of the Navy attacking Godzilla out at sea. We have seen it many times over the years. I mean, the models look good. The effects tank as always looks good. The Godzilla suit is nice, but there's nothing uh, special about it. You know, it, it's, it could have been taken from any number of films and that would have been the same. They, I mean, other than the suit looking different from a effectiveness standpoint they could have used stock footage for this now obviously you don't you prefer new effects to stock footage please don't don't misunderstand me but they don't do anything really new or different with it so it's it doesn't really stand out in the film overall um now the when godzilla makes landfall at shinagawa this i did like because a plot point is made earlier that shinagawa which was the location of godzilla and kiru's fight in the first film is still in ruins and is being reconstructed so the construction and renovation work is ongoing when Godzilla lands. So we see buildings that are just frames. We see uh, construction vehicles, cranes, uh, you know, obvious that, that work is undergoing, but it's not rebuilt. I thought that was a really nice touch. That's not something you see. Typically when the monster lands, it's in a, a harbor city or whatever that is obviously operating. And even in going back to like... Um, Godzilla versus Biolanti again, they make, they talk about how parts of Tokyo are still under construction, but Godzilla doesn't go to Tokyo and that film, he goes to Osaka. So I thought that was a nice touch and it does make the models a little more unique and memorable seeing that a lot of the buildings are still under construction and G trashes them once again. Uh, there's a nice shot in this uh, scene where we get an overhead kind of wide shot 
of Godzilla and the entire models uh, of, of Shinagawa. So I thought that was really cool. It's not an angle that you see too often. You do see it sometimes. I think there's a few times in the Heisei era where we get similar shots, but I liked it in that it showed kind of the scale, both the, you know, the, 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 uh, the scale of the model itself, but also the absolute, absolute size of how big this scale model city was uh, relative to the size of, uh, of Godzilla. So I thought that was a, a nice shot as well. Uh, while Godzilla is in Shinagawa, we get Mazer Tanks, which I thought was... First off, Mazer Tanks are always welcome, but of course this is, as I mentioned, a continuity nod to Godzilla. X Mecha Godzilla, that Mazer Tanks are a major part of the JSDF's arsenal. So I thought that was a very nice touch. So after Godzilla makes landfall, Dr. Chujo's grandson, who is, I don't know, maybe about 10 or so... Uh, we see him make the Mothra symbol from desks at his school in the parking lot. This is, uh, they, they do set this up. This is a callback to them painting the Mothra symbol on the airstrip in the original Mothra. So I thought that was a, a nice touch. This is the main reason um, why this character is, is in the film, I think, is for this scene and then to be rescued by Dr. Chujo and then have to get, uh, you know, basically get trapped in a some rubble at some point. They don't, he doesn't serve much other purpose, but... It, it does, it, it's a nice callback, and it's very neat seeing the, all uh, the white tops of the desk forming the Mothra logo in the, in the parking lot of the school. I thought that was a, visually, I, I liked that, and again, it's a nice callback to the, uh, to the previous film. This brings Mothra, uh, into the fight against Godzilla. Now, Mothra here, uh, there are some parts where she is presented in CG, and her wings look really nice in the CG. She's got really deep, flapping, nicely moving wings. Uh, here, which is always nice to see. Now, again, I all I, I tarkin on this a lot, but I'm always reminded of uh, Godzilla's Mothra 92, which has those really just uh, unimpressive flapping wings. But they they seem to pay more attention to it here, both in the model work and the CG work. Uh, she does use her Hurricane Force winds, which is nice. Uh, you know, typical flying monster from Toho has to you know create hurricane style winds. This is just standard stuff. But it's well done, and the destruction that is wreaked on the uh, city model is, is nice. We get you know, things being toppled over and cars flying around and stuff. We also, in this scene, uh, get a the, uh, the first real instance in the film. We see it a little bit before this, but a nice spotlight on the cable-driven head puppet for Godzilla. You can see that it's a puppet just from the range of motion, but you can see him kind of reacting to the hurricane winds and all the stuff being blown around. It's, it's nice work. You know, it's interesting because... Um, you don't think so much. You, obviously, with Godzilla, the main thing is, is submation, but uh, the advances just in the ability of the puppetry work, uh, even going back to, like, Godzilla 85 and those early Heisei films, really helps a lot because you get a lot of personality from a simple cable-driven puppet that you can't get from, like, a, a, a suit, a head on a, on a submation suit. And I say cable-driven, I mean, it's more than likely animatronic, given that this is 2003, but it's the same basic effect. You've got servos and everything inside that allow it a range of motion uh, that you couldn't get from uh, a head that a suit actor has to wear. Interesting scene in this fight, Mothra at one point sneaks up behind Godzilla and grabs him by the back of the neck with her legs and then flies and then throws him. And we see Godzilla just kind of skidding along the streets, knocking things down and going along. You don't often think of Mothra as being strong enough to grab Godzilla and throw him along like a bowling ball, but hey, obviously a monster god can do just about whatever she wants. Now this fight goes on for quite a while. In fact, it transitions from daytime when Godzilla first lands and it's nighttime and they're still fighting. 
which is kind of interesting because there's no real other indication about the passage of time. We don't get any news updates or anything like that. So this fight's just going on for a long time. You know, it's just both from a amount of time in the film and from a real a real time situation. As it uh, as the battle rages on into nighttime, uh, Mothra changes to using her poison scales again. Callback to uh, Godzilla versus Mothra from, or excuse me, Mothra versus Godzilla from 1964. In fact, it is specifically called out as a weapon of last resort. I think the exact phrasing is used in the Japanese version of Mothra versus Godzilla. So, a clear, obvious callback makes sense. You know that there's one of many such references back to previous Mothra appearances in this film. Our next Mothra reference comes soon after this, uh, as we cut to what would I would have thought, and in fact, in my notes originally I wrote as Infant Island. But Mothra's Island in this film is specifically called out as Hemago Island in the Bonin Islands. Now, I was not familiar, I knew the name the Bonin Islands, but I wanted to look up and get more information because I wasn't super familiar with it. So the Bonin Islands, that is an archipelago directly south of Japan, and it's pretty much the definition of what we think of when we say a South Seas Island in the context of a Daikaiju film. Uh, it is very small. There's, there's, um, a few thousand, um, natives of different ethnicity, ethnicities that live on these islands, but they are not developed. They are very, you know, small tropical islands. And the interesting thing about the Bonin Islands is that because they are, uh, they are, they are volcanic. They were not ever part of a continent that broke off. They are, they were formed from underground volcanic activity. So a lot of unique evolution has occurred on these islands because of that. They don't have common, um, evolutionary history with, say, for example, Asia or Oceania because they were never part of those continents. So when you think about it, that really makes the perfect place for, you know, for example, gigantic moths or vampiric plants or tiny fairy girls to live and develop because they're not part of normal evolution uh, science because they're kind of off on their own, kind of like the Galapagos were. So I can, you know, that that actually makes a lot of sense. And plus, again, the traditional South Seas Island setting for, uh, you know, these islands in a, in a Daikaiju film, I, I thought that was a nice bit of uh, creative approach to it, uh, you know, even if it's not infant island per se. Now, on Hamago Island, our two priestesses sing the, moth, sing the Mothra song, of course, and two larvae hatch out of the egg, of course. Now, clearly a uh, an obvious homage, but a well-done one, so I'm going to let it go. You know, I mean, uh, this was not quite the 40th anniversary. This was the 39th anniversary, 2003 versus uh, 1964, but, you know, close enough for government work. And the story does take place in, in uh, 2004, so it would have been the... Uh, the 40th anniversary of uh, Mothra vs. Godzilla. So, you know, and that, and that, that whole, I mean, all that stuff of Mothra vs. Godzilla is so iconic for the character of Mothra that if you're going to make a sequel to Mothra, it makes sense to reference those in there as well. Uh, back in Japan, Mothra and Godzilla are still fighting. So this fight has again been going on for hours now. Um, there's a very cool scene here where Godzilla actually breathes atomic breath into the poison scales and it's like a bomb going off. I mean, it, it explodes like they dropped a bomb right on the two of them right there in the center of the city. And there's just a massive explosion and fireball and it leaves just, just devastation all around it. Now Godzilla survives this, of course, but I thought this was a, uh, a very, very cool visual. And I very much liked this bit of Godzilla, uh, you know, setting off the poison scales like a bomb. So at this point, Kiru is finally 
reassembled and scrambles and makes landfall. And his initial response is to do the fusillade of shots, which is similar to the previous film where he fires all the weapons all at once and they just blast into Godzilla. This sequence of that uh, is, is done better because if you remember in the last film when they were doing that, Godzilla looked really stiff, almost as if they didn't have anyone in the suit. It's almost as if it was just a, a prop suit that they were blowing up all the pieces on and it looked really unconvincing. Here, it's handled better. We see the uh, Godzilla's reaction to the various uh, weapons that blast into him. Mothra get, ends up getting wounded by the atomic breath, but actually saves Kiru. Now, of course, you know, an hour ago in the film, Mothra had threatened to attack mankind if Kiru was not returned to the sea. But that plot point is completely forgotten by this point, because whatever plot about that, about Mothra attacking humanity is is just jettisoned i mean it it's i don't know if we were never supposed to take it seriously or if something got left on the editing room floor but now mothra whose priestess says said that kiru was an abomination is now fighting godzilla with kiru and i understand that mothra said that you know the priestesses said that mothra would defend japan against godzilla but it, it seems like they've got this a bit muddled here that mothra's motivation doesn't seem to be uh, as sharp as as would one would expect from a character like mothra the battle is back and forth. At one point, uh, the arm unit on uh, Kiru is damaged, so they jettison it, and it actually crushes a police car, which is kind of funny. Uh, Godzilla is uh, ends up using a tail chop and th- tail chops uh, Kiru right through a building, and then Godzilla ends up getting suplexed and thrown by Kiru. There's a lot of good back and forth action. I mean, there's the monster action in the last act of this film is top notch stuff. Don't get me wrong; the effects are good, the monster battles are well choreographed and well put together. So that part of the film works really well from just a straight action standpoint. Uh, then we get a great combination attack from Godzilla where he uses a tail sweep to sweep Kiro off his legs. And as he's down, blasts him with the atomic breath. I thought that was really pretty cool and uh, a nice use of uh, a combination style attack and using both the physical and the uh, the ranged weapon attacks. You know, it's not like a uh, some of the Heisei films where it's just beams back and forth. Uh, during the, the fight, the larvae eventually show up, having swam uh, from uh, from the Bonins, and Mothra shields the larvae from, ato- from Godzilla's atomic breath and dies in a fiery explosion. Now, interestingly here, the eyes on the larvae are blue when they first hatch and when they first arrive, but once the imago of Mothra is killed, their eyes change to red. So you know, just got real. Uh, <laughs> That's, uh, of course, not much of the different colored eyes that the larva Mothra had in the in the Showa era. And uh, one of the larvae grabs a tail and bites onto Godzilla's tail and goes for a, a ride up and down, of course, because we're continuing our homages to 1964. Now, while all this has been going on, Yoshida's been kind of having his own adventure of trying to get to the scene of battle to fix Kiru. He, he gets a ride from a military jeep, and then he takes a motorcycle through the underground, and gets a hint from the Shobajin for where to climb up. And uh, unfortunately, this whole sequence, it's very disconnected. It doesn't really feel organic with what's going on with the monsters, and it really slows down the action. Now, there are diff- multiple different ways you can handle the uh, the balancing of the monster plot and the human plot. You know, one of the ones that I like, and going back to a lot, is Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, where the two plots don't drive each other, but events that happen in one directly correspond with events that happen in the other. So, for instance, you know, they're going to kill uh, the princess in Ghidorah, and then Rodan drops Godzilla on the uh, on the, uh, the power lines, 
and the power gets cut off before they can kill the princess. We do get some of that here. We'll see that very shortly when Yoshido is trapped in the Mechagodzilla and can't get out because the access hatch ends up getting deformed and he can't open it. So there is some of that, but this whole thing of him getting there, I don't know. It doesn't really do it for me. And I said, it really slows it down, especially when we've had such an action-heavy, long sequence of monsters fighting already in the last act. Plus, there's also the fact that the simple fact that he gets in, that he has to walk around inside Mechaga, inside of Kiru, I should say, is pretty much the same thing that Akane does in the previous film. So it's not even that original. He's doing something different. He's actually making repairs and pulling out, um, you know, circuit boards. And he actually, it's one thing where he calls into the rest of the crew, the mechanical crew, and says, I need circuit diagrams. And they all jump to work pulling out the, the diagrams and all that and telling him where to bypass things. So that was nice. But it, again, it's very similar to what Akane goes through, but we just don't have the emotional connection to Yoshido that we did to Akane. Uh, as is a, a tradition in Godzilla films, they destroy the Diet building. Uh, very nice to see landmarks of Tokyo getting smashed up, and uh, Tokyo Tower also gets destroyed, so that's two for two on recognizable uh, Tokyo landmarks getting appearing and then being destroyed. Uh, towards the end of the fight, Kiru breaks out the spinny drill hand, always a popular weapon for uh, giant robots, and goes right into G's chest wound. And uh, it's interesting because when we see the wound, they target it immediately and start attacking it. So I do like that there is some internal uh, logic to how they're trying to beat him by using the fact that he was wounded in the previous fight. Uh, the hyper maser then fires up, and again, they're just blasting him in this in the, his, uh, his chest. Um, this triggers Kiru's memories. And I guess it's Godzilla's scream, you know, howling in pain that triggers Kiru's memories again. And once again, this was the major plot point in the previous film is that Kiru has these, you know, inherited memories from Godzilla's bones. It's again, it's, it's uh, here. I think Tezuka's assuming that we've seen the last film because there's no explanation given, but that's okay. They've given us enough of this that we know that it's uh, G54's bones in there and all that. So, um, now, unlike the last time, this does not drive Kiru into a rage, which is probably for the best. Um, while, while Kiru was kind of locked up because now Kiru's in control and the pilots have no control whatsoever over him, uh, Godzilla is silked up by the larva because once again, we need more Godzilla, uh, 64 references. And it's, it's again, nicely done, but it's, you know, it's, it's like, okay. I mean, I get it. It's all homages to stuff that's come before, but it just, it doesn't do much for me. It's like the original was, that's a cool scene because it's unique. You know, when they, uh, even when they recycled that to web up King Ghidorah, the, you know, in, uh, a year or later in 1964, they did it differently. They had Mothra on the back of Rodan and Godzilla was there here. It, it really is with the two of them, the two larvae shooting silk, it's Godzilla webbed up in silk. So it's, it's, it's a little on the nose, even for an homage. Um, Kiru, as I said, is in control, grabs Godzilla and flies off. There's a very, uh, it's, it's pretty cheesy to be honest, where I know, uh, Yoshida is still trying to get out and he, uh, and so Kiru puts a message on the screen that says sayonara, but it's sayonara written in English. I don't know if this was a pickup for maybe on American media release or international release, but, um, because I watched this on DVD in Japanese with, Eng with the in English subtitles, and we'll talk about those in a minute, but why would it be in Romanized? Why wouldn't it be in, uh, in, in, in kanji? So that, that was a little odd to me. I would have, it would have made more sense to me to have it in kanji and then have, um, you know, a subtitle for, to tell us it said sayonara, 
So that that's that's kind of corny. And then Kiru and Godzilla crash into the sea. Um, not, not unlike the end of uh, Godzilla versus King Ghidorah or Godzilla versus Mothra, or you know, it's just throwing back, throw the bones back into the sea. But at least that is Kiru and Godzilla both in the sea. So the bones of um, of the original Godzilla are back in the sea. So that part of the plot at least does get resolved. And the PM does say that they're done. They're scrapping the project now that this is that everything is done with this. So that um, at least does kind of close the loop on that plot line, which I thought was was nice. Uh, the Shobajin give us a little moral that says that life has to be lived in the time nature allows, which, you know, okay. I mean, it's, it's a reasonable thing. They say several times that, you know, the living may never touch the bones of the dead. And I understand that's, that, that to me makes more sense in the context of the first film, just because they don't do a lot with it in this film. You know, this film is more about the action than it is any of the, uh, more intellectual aspects of the plot or spiritual or metaphysical aspects of the plot. So it's a nice, nice enough coda. And then we get the post credit scene, which is just a simple shot of a refrigeration unit that is showing us Godzilla DNA that was harvested in 1954. And then we get a announcement over the PA system that the biogenetics um, experiment is beginning and that everyone should be in their places because it's beginning. This was the teaser for the planned third part of what was to be a trilogy. And the rumored title for this was Godzilla x Godzilla, with the 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 understood plot to be that they were going to use this Godzilla DNA to not create a new Mechagodzilla, but instead to clone Godzilla 54 and have for the uh, for the end of the 50th anniversary have the modern Godzilla fight the original Godzilla and it was going to be Godzilla x Godzilla. Um, yeah, that did not happen, obviously. Now, the reason why that did not happen is that this film sold a very poor 1.1 million tickets, which was continuing the downward trend of these films all throughout the 2000s, even with Hamtaro. Now, one of the reasons that Toho put these Hamtaro films on there was that Hamtaro was more popular than Godzilla. So the idea of pairing their two biggest stars together to try and draw in more eyeballs did not work. And so the decision was made to scrap the sequel and Toho instead move forward with uh, what would end up being the very radically different film, Godzilla Final Wars in 2004, which put the series to bed for a few years in an attempt to let public interest build back up in the character. And um, part of the fallout from Final Wars, of course, is what led to Legendary eventually making their Godzilla film. And um, even... What's interesting is, again, of course, despite the success of the legendary Godzilla film, Toho still developing their own Godzilla films uh, at, at the same time. So kind of the end, definitely the beginning of the end of the era here for the Millennium films and kind of a changing of how Godzilla would work going forward. Now, overall, it's a very competent, very well-made Godzilla movie, but really nothing particularly stands out about it as new or different or exciting. It's very much in line with the previous film, but but that film handled all the characters, you know, including the monsters, a lot better. And so we were more invested in the characters than we are in this one. Ultimately, Tokyo SOS seems a bit unnecessary and almost perfunctory. It's kind of just going through the motions in some of its, uh, some of it. it. It has a lot of action. It moves along at a very brisk pace for the first two acts. Things slow down a bit in the third one, a third act, again, with Yoshido's uh, bits really kind of gumming up the works a bit. You know, like so, and, and that hurts the momentum of the story, which is unfortunate. You know, if you, things are a little slow in the first reel and then they pick up, that's one thing. But, you know, moving quickly at the first two acts and then slowing down at the end, that, that's a tougher, a tougher hurdle to get over. 
Uh, the character is just not as engaging as I said. And, you know, Yoshido and Dr. Chujo are just not on the level of a character like Akane where, you know, I was invested in Akane's story and I wanted to see what happened to her and I wanted her to earn her redemption. And so her earning that over the course of the film kept me very interested as a viewer. We just don't get that with Yoshido. He's just not on the same level of emotional depth or characterization that Akane was. Ultimately, it's a good movie. It's worth watching. It's, uh, I think, I think younger viewers would absolutely eat up all the monster stuff, but it's got some pretty obvious flaws in it. So it's probably for the best that they didn't make as interesting as it would have been to see Godzilla x Godzilla. I don't know how it would have turned out. Now, whether you like Final Wars or don't, and frankly, the, the gamut of opinions goes from one end of the spectrum to the other on that film, it was something different. It was not, you know, a, uh, another film in this style. So there's something to be said for that. Now, if you would like to watch uh, Tokyo SOS, you have some options. Uh, there is a DVD release from 2004, which is $11.77 on Amazon as I uh, as, as of this recording. Video presentation is is decent, not great. Uh, the early nighttime scenes show the disc age. There's a lot of grain. In fact, there's a lot of grain throughout the entire film. Um, it's, but you know, so, but it, but it looks good. It, it's certainly not these you know super clean discs like we see nowadays. But if you want to watch the movie, it's a perfectly good option. Uh, there is a Blu-ray double feature along with Final Wars, which uh, right now is twelve dollars and ninety-four cents on Amazon. Now I've not seen the Blu-ray, but I imagine that they would look very nice considering that this was made in two thousand three, and most of these um, uh, Sony Blu-ray releases of the Godzilla films have looked very nice. So it's probably if if you have a Blu-ray, that might be the way to go, and that would be you get both films for about the same price. Now, uh, the both releases do have the uh, English language track and then the Japanese language audio track with subtitles. And note about the subtitles. They are not a translation of the Japanese dialogue. They are dub titles where they are essentially a closed caption track for the dubbed, the, the, the English dub rather than a translation. So there's a lot of times where it's clear they're saying Kiru and the dub titles will say Mecha G or Mecha Godzilla, which is more annoying than anything else. I prefer to have, you know, actual translated subtitles rather than dub titles. But in this film, I don't think it takes away from it too much. I did not listen to the, uh, like I said, I, I did not listen to the English language. I, I watched it in Japanese. English language is the international dub. So a lot of very flat uh, Midwestern style sounding voices. Nothing, no great performances, but certainly listenable if you would like to uh, not have to read the subtitles. Uh, both discs have the same extras. They've got um, about a 20-minute behind-the-scenes B-roll just showing them filming all the stuff, which is interesting enough. It doesn't have any um, narration or anything, so you're just kind of watching it as it happens. And then uh, the video is also available for on Amazon Video, which you can rent or buy, as is usual with that. So uh, that's my thoughts on Tokyo SOS. What about you guys? Did you like this one? Did uh, you not like this one? Do you wish that Godzilla x Godzilla had been made? What do you think? Send in your thoughts. EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. We can talk about them here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive.
eons past. A monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Okay, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Marvel's Godzilla number 19 is cover dated February 1979 and was released on or around October 31st, 1978. This information, as always, comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which can be found at mikesamazingworld.com or dcindexes.com. Our cover is credited to Herb Trimpey and Bob Wyacek. In fact, you have their uh, signatures right there on the right-hand side. And it, uh, the cover copy says, Panic on the Pier. And we see a six-foot-tall Godzilla grappling with all of our cast. And it's a very interesting cover. This is one of the more unique ones in, this, uh, uh, in, in the covers that we've had on the series here. We see Gabe Jones, Dum Dum Duggan, um, uh, Jimmy Woo, all kind of grappling along with with Godzilla here, who Godzilla roars his defiance as he's trying to shake them off. Very, uh, very unique cover. In uh, we'll get this in the in the notes, but there's no size difference, which there always is uh, on these covers so far to show the difference in scale. But everyone's the same height here. So, our writer is Doug Mench. Our penciler is Herb Trimpey. Inker is Daniel Green. Our letterer is Shelley Lefferman. Colorist is Ben Sean. Our editor is Jim Shooter. And the title of our story is With Duggan on the Docks. And our synopsis is adapted from marvel.wikia.com. Rob Takaguchi finds Godzilla as the monster emerges from the sewer systems of New York City. Godzilla is now roughly six feet tall. Rob tries to keep him calm, and Godzilla seems receptive to Rob's pleas. The boy even finds a trench coat and hat to obscure Godzilla's features as they try to hide in the back alleyways. Two muggers try to accost the pair, but Godzilla shreds through his disguise and sends them running after he blasts them with his atomic breath. Later, Rob and Godzilla encounter Duggan's team on the docks. Duggan tries to fire a tranquilizer dart, but Gabe Jones, believing that Duggan is firing an actual live round, spoils his shot. Godzilla lets loose with a burst of atomic flame, but Duggan deflects it with a trash can lead. He then picks up a pole arm and rushes the monster, but Godzilla easily disarms it. Failing that, Duggan tries fisticuffs, but Godzilla backhands him, sending Duggan sprawling. Gabe leaps upon Godzilla's back, but this too proves to be a poor tactic. Godzilla snaps his head forward, sending Gabe flying over the ledge. While the monster's attention is focused on Jones, Duggan attacks from behind with a dropkick. Gabe climbs back up onto the dock, but Godzilla grabs him with both claws and pitches him into the water. Turning, he punches Duggan in the face, knocking him to the ground. Godzilla lumbers off into the night, and Rob screams, Come back! But the monster doesn't heed him this time. Godzilla is loose and alone on the streets of New York. A look of consternation crosses Duggan's face as he realizes that the Pym Particles' uh, shrinking formula is quickly wearing off. Godzilla is growing bigger. Next issue, get ready for a night at the museum. P.S. Your congenial tour guides will be none other than the fabulous Fantastic Four. 
Okay, yeah, th this is a bit unusual. For what's been an unusual but gen generally very enjoyable storyline, this issue is a bit of a change of pace. And, um, you know, I think it's best we just get right into the notes. As I said, the cover, uh, there's no height differences um, because everyone is the same height. So that alone is, is kind of interesting. It's more of a, uh, a typical sort of comic book cover. You can almost imagine this being like the Hulk with a bunch of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents trying to grapple with the Hulk here. Obviously, there's no tail for Jimmy Woo to be grabbing onto. But, you know, it's a little bit out of the ordinary for these Godzilla co uh, covers that we've gotten, which have all used scale in some way to show the height differences. Typically, Godzilla was the large element uh, compared to the small human elements, and then we got the one where Godzilla was the small element when they had shrunk him down compared to the humans. And then last issue, everything was the same height, but everything was small. And so we had the background elements were much larger to show the small scale of Godzilla and the rat. Here, everyone is human-sized, so, uh, you know, it, even though it's a common... A layout for a cover. It's unique amongst the ones we've gotten for Godzilla. On uh, page one, where Godzilla and Rob meet on the street, what I like here from Trimpy is all the detail. Once again, I've, I've said this for all the issues set in New York, there's been some really excellent detail work. Here we get the details on the street, including some trash in the in the gutter and the sewer. We get all the buildings have some nice architectural detail. There you see the aerial antennas on some of the roofs. Remember, this is 1978, so very common to see the aerial antennas to pull down television and radio signals in the city. So I thought that was a, a real nice touch. Uh, it's a nice scene setting. We also get a Cadillac rolling by, a uh, big uh, late 70s Cadillac with the flat uh, uh, headlamps. Uh, on it. So I thought that was a nice touch as well. It really does sell the scene as being in Manhattan when you get the little uh, detail touches like that. Over on page two, panel one, one of the details put into the background is a, a, a very thinly disguised Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey circus poster, which as someone who grew up in New York and remembers uh, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey circus always being a big deal when that came to town. I remember uh, that very well from my childhood. So that, that was a nice touch. Um, starting on page two and running for pages two and three, this whole sequence of Rob convincing Godzilla to come with him, and then they see a drunk, uh, and the drunk throws his bottle away. It's, it's a little ridiculous. We're going to get more ridiculous as this issue goes on, but, you know, it, it this kind of reminded me of, like, the bit in Moonraker where they're driving the gondolas, and you see the pigeons doing double takes, and the, you know, the guys looking at their wine and stuff like that, so that was a little, a little silly. Um, we could turn over now to page six, panel three. The, uh, this is nice as there's a panic, of course, with Rob and Godzilla running around. And so they get a mounted police officer from the NYPD. Now, those folks who have never been to New York may not, you know, may know this, may not, but a mounted police officer, especially in the seventies would have been a fairly common scene in Manhattan. So again, more local flavor from Mensch and Trimpy in their depiction here of a mounted police officer who gives chase uh, to Rob and Godzilla before they escape through an alley. So I thought, again, that was a nice touch. Every time I see a mounted police officer, I always think of Wade Boggs riding the horse after the Yankees won the World Series. I what year that was. It was in the, in the 90s, and it, it was the horse that belonged for us to a mounted police officer in Yankee Stadium. Over on page 7, the, we catch up with the rest of the team. Uh, Jimmy and Tamara are in Central Park looking for Godzilla. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, taking in the sights of Central Park at the same time. I don't know where Dr. Hawkins and Dr. Takaguchi are supposed to be. There is a statue that looks like a, a bird of some kind, but I'm not clear 
on the skyline is not definitive enough for me to know where they're supposed to be. So that's a little frustrating. I'm, I'm guessing it must be somewhere, but unfortunately my, uh, my knowledge is limited here, so I don't know where they are. And then finally, in the last panel of the page, we've got Dum Dum and Gabe, and they are at the UN building, which makes sense that S.H.I.E.L.D. would uh, be, be looking, you know, there. That they, That's where they would be depicted, you know, the World Peacekeeping Organization, the UN, a world, uh, you know, worldwide organization. So I thought that was a nice touch. And again, a little bit more local New York flavor, which has been a really nice aspect of these issues set in and around Manhattan, is the, you know, little bits of actual real-life Manhattan that have crept in to the artwork. Turning over now to page 10, panel 4, we get a pair of street punks who are straight out of the 1970s New York uh, City vintage style. Uh, you know, this this is any any good exploitation movie from the 1970s set in New York would have punks very much like these two. And of course, they are a racially diverse group as we have one white guy and one African-American guy, of course. So I, I like that touch. The next panel, we see Godzilla wearing a trench coat and a hat. <sighs> Yeah, um, I don't like this. It's one thing for Ben Grimm to be wearing a trench coat and a hat. It's one thing for Raphael the Ninja Turtles. Godzilla, no. And especially the way Trimpy draws him. His arms are too small. Um, you know, his, he's got a big gut. I, I, this is, this is a bit, this is a bit much. I, I really did not like this. This kind of was grown worthy to me. And then, of course, he shreds it the next page. And, uh, on that page, um, you know, Godzilla breathes atomic breath at these two street punks and they run away. He's basically gone Paul Kersey on these guys. They've been accosted by two punks and he's killed them. I'm sorry. There's no way around this. These guys are not wearing like a shield uniform or anything like this. They're just wearing street clothes and he just got blasted with even a scaled down version of Godzilla's atomic breath. These guys are going to be dead in a flop house or in the alley somewhere of massive amounts of radiation poisoning, just like the Cowboys from a few issues back. These guys, they, they can count their lives in a matter of hours now. And it's, again, uh, from as a Death Wish fan, I like this. It made me, again, think of Paul Kersey, but just seems, you know, like it, it's played a bit for laughs. But again, you got to think about the actual implications of being shot with, uh, you know, a pure concentrated stream of radiation like that. So again, this this is, yeah, this is a bit much. Over on page 14, panel 2 is a really nicely rendered panel of the behemoth sitting in the harbor, which I thought was nice. Um, we saw earlier in this storyline that behemoth was anchored down uh, by the battery, and it still appears to be there now. So I thought that was nice. Always nice to see behemoth. It's unfortunate. I don't think behemoth ever shows up in the Marvel Universe at large outside of these issues of Godzilla, but it's a nice design. It's not just your standard helicarrier. It looks like a heavy weapons platform, and it's all slab-sided, very 1970s, with the two big Enterprise-like nacelles over the top. So would have been nice to see it elsewhere, but I like it as an element um, unique to the Godzilla team, and I think it's it's well used for the most part in this series, even if it does break down quite a lot on the in the earlier stories. Now, then, this sequence run that runs from pages 15 to 30, that, that's the pages actually printed on the comic. There's no story pages on the art, so that includes ads. This whole thing is pretty silly overall. I mean, we've got the human-sized Godzilla grappling, punching, tail-chopping, you know, protecting Rob Takaguchi. I, I can accept a lot. I'm a Godzilla fan. I like giant monsters. You know, I like comic books. I'm willing to accept a lot of stuff, and I've accepted some strange stuff in the course of this series. The cowboy ones springs to mind immediately. That one guy that was riding Godzilla like a Bronco. You know, and I'm willing to buy that. This, this is a bridge too far for me. 
this really took me out of the story. I thought that this was, I don't know if this was being played for laughs or what, but it doesn't really work. I, and it, it, unfortunately it just did not strike the right chord with me. So that really overall kind of soured me on the issue because I think it's the issue is built around this sequence and it's like, that mm, didn't really do it for me. It's unfortunate because I think that overall the storyline is well, but that this part really just did it didn't work for me. A couple of the details in the fight on page 17, uh, Duggan takes aim at Godzilla and Gabe knocks it out of the way. And Gabe is surprised that it's a tranquilizer dart. I, I, and it's, I think this is more interesting more for Duggan because Duggan was all about putting Godzilla down earlier in the series. But now after the mega monsters and all this, he's gotten a little bit of a grudging respect for Godzilla. But also, one has to consider that they've just spent all this time and money and effort to capture Godzilla alive and shrink him down and bring him to New York. So why would he then just kill him? So I, I understand Jones's um, uh, bias because Duggan has been very hardline on this for the most part. But I think it's a, a nice bit of character development for both of them in that Jones assumes that Duggan is trying to kill him, but Duggan is not, which shows Duggan's growth and change over the, the course of the series in regards to his opinion about Godzilla. Turning over now to page 22, Duggan grabs a trash can lid and uses it as a shield. This, of course, immediately reminds me of the young uh, Steve Rogers in Captain America, the first Avenger, where he grabs a trash can lid. And I can do this all day. Duggan doesn't say that, and he probably couldn't do it all day because, uh, you know, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with even a six-foot-tall Godzilla, you'll probably be dead sooner rather than later. But again, we're willing to suspend our disbelief. Uh, always nice to see Duggan kind of emulating Cap a little bit there. Uh, the next page, Duggan grabs a polearm and is he charges at him like a joust. Uh, Godzilla no-sells this. He snaps the polearm and just knocks Duggan down. Uh, again, another New York reference. This makes me think of the Bill Murray film Quick Change, where uh, Bill Murray and Gina Davis and Randy Quaid are uh, lost in New York, and they come across, they're in the barrio, and they come across two guys having a joust on bicycles. And the line from Randy Quaid, it's bad luck just seeing something like that. That was the first that popped to my mind here. That's probably just me. That, that's a little bit obscure, even for a Quick Change reference. If we could just find a landmark... Ask this guy. Excuse me, sir. Sir, excuse me. Just seeing a thing like that. Uh, 
Um, over now on to page 26, uh, Gabe Jones jumps into Godzilla's back, and clearly uh, Godzilla falls victim to the idea that any character from uh, an Asian country in the comic book knows martial arts because he immediately shoulder throws him right over the top like a judo-style throw. Um, again, what, what does it take to get shoulder thrown by Godzilla? I mean, understand that happens in, you know, that does it to Gabra in Godzilla's Revenge. He shoulder throws him around. Uh, but I don't know. There's something about this in a, where they're both all human size, that this is just a little strange to me. And I, I mean, it's, it's funny. It's, it's odd, but it just didn't work from a dramatic standpoint um, when I was reading the issue. Uh, page 27, um, Duggan does the Captain Kirk two-legged dropkick. The sound effect is chud. Now, interesting to note, this is 1978. This is a full uh, six years before the movie chud was released. So I cannot imagine this is an intentional reference, but hey, you never know. Um, the chuds do not appear in this story that I am aware of. I mean, like, I suppose they could pop up sometime later on in the series, but I doubt it. But Chud, always always fun to see a, a goofy sound effect like that that has a kind of double meeting. Over now to page 30. Um, Godzilla has had enough of Gabe's crap and presses him over his head like the Ultimate Warrior and throws him into the drink. And that is, again, just one more thing. The panel of this just looks so odd with Godzilla pressing him above his head and Gabe kind of flailing in, in defiance. It, it doesn't work for me. I'm, I'm sorry. The, the art is fine. It's just overall, I, I never didn't buy into it. Um, page 31. Finally, Rob Takaguchi has all the feels once again. No, Godzilla, come back, come back. And he's crying and all that. He's all upset um, because, you know, he had got Godzilla back. And once again, S.H.I.E.L.D. screws it up as is kind of been the story of this series overall. But, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm willing to work with Rob here because he put himself out there and got Godzilla back after he inadvertently caused his escape. So, and then S.H.I.E.L.D., of course, didn't listen to him and, you know, didn't even listen to each other because ostensibly it may have been possible for Duggan to put Godzilla to sleep with the tranquilizer dart. That's a big assumption that it would make it through Godzilla's hide. But, you know, S.H.I.E.L.D. was trying to capture him non-violently and you know they didn't listen to each other and it caused a fight and Godzilla escaped so I can understand Rob's emotions here Rob who put himself out there and was the one to fix the problem and then S.H.I.E.L.D. screwed it up again so you do kind of feel for Rob in, in this instance um one little thing though with Godzilla now once again loose in New York and no one where knows where he is we are absolutely no better than we were back at the cliffhanger of issue number 17 we're essentially at the same exact point except Godzilla is a little taller now he is at large in New York, no one knows where he is. So ultimately, his fight against the sewer rat and then this issue don't advance the story other than Godzilla has grown a few a few feet taller. Ultimately, if Godzilla had escaped at six feet tall at the end of issue 17, we could be we could jump right into the next issue and it wouldn't have impacted anything. That happens sometimes. It's just usually I think of that more in the modern or even, even into the 90s sense where we're just kind of pacing things along rather than on a Bronze Age issue where things tend to advance issue to issue. Uh, very silly concept here, you know, Rob Takaguchi smuggling Godzilla back to S.H.I.E.L.D. and then Godzilla fighting with S.H.I.E.L.D. at human height. It's the premise for the entire issue. And so since the concept for me is very hard to swallow, that makes the overall issue hard to swallow and something of a disappointment. Uh, I have to ask, is this marking time? With what I what I was just saying about the 
the ending of this issue essentially resetting us back to the end of two issues prior was the writing on the wall that they had, you know, bought their next license for a year and that the end of the series was going to be at issue 24. That was this Mensch kind of marking out, okay, I want to do this, this number of issues for this part. I want to do this number of issues of this part and just kind of pacing themselves out so he could tell the remaining stories in the issues that they had. Again, I, I don't know that that's speculation, but it certainly feels that way reading the issue now, knowing that the end is only uh, five issues after this. There's only, you know, issues 20 through 24, and that is it. I'm very eager to see the Fantastic Four in the next issue. We've had a fair amount of Fantastic Four coverage on this very podcast due to their connections with the Shogun Warriors. So I'm interested to see the FF again. Always uh, happy to see the first family of Marvel, and especially in the uh, in the 70s. And especially interesting, Doug Mensch writing the Fantastic Four when he would, of course, go on to write the Fantastic Four uh, after his tenure on both this book and on uh, Shogun Warriors, as we covered way back when we did FF number 226 with the final appearance of the Shogun pilots. That said, this particular issue is a disappointment to me after what has been a very strong and enjoyable storyline of them shrinking Godzilla and then him escaping and running loose in New York. So I'm hoping that this issue is kind of an aberration and that number 20 will get back to the kind of high, uh, fun, high quality uh, storytelling we've been getting otherwise in this storyline. Uh, let's take a flip through the issue and see what we got here. Um, do want to say that I actually, when I originally read this issue, I read it out of Essential Godzilla, which of course this issue is collected in, as all 24 issues are. But I then went to Heroes Con up in Charlotte of uh, Father's Day weekend, and uh, I was able to pick this issue up along with one other. I am now only missing number 10, uh, which is the, uh, the first appearance of Yetrigar, that is the only issue I am missing of this series uh, in individual singles format. So that was cool. A nice pickup for a dollar or so up at Heroes Con to, to grab this. So flipping through the issue, uh, we get the Energized Spider-Man ad, the inside front cover. We've talked about that one before. Mm, we get uh, a house ad. They came from inner space. The Micronauts are here. I've never read the Micronauts. Uh, the toys were before my time. I know there's a lot of people have a lot of affection for them, but I've never been able to really get into them compared to the toy lines from the 80s that I grew up with and thus am more familiar with. Uh, we got Crossman air guns. I can't imagine them ever allowing them to advertise an air gun nowadays. Uh, another Marvel house ad. Be behold, the Marvel galaxy of superstars. The man called Nova. Captain Marvel. The Incredible Hulk. The hands of Shang-Chi. The master of Kung Fu. And Daredevil. The man without fear at your newsstand. Not very far, far away. A nice little play on the uh, Star Wars uh, you know, uh, catchphrase that, of course, Marvel was hip deep in publishing Star Wars at this time. So that was nice. And some nice mix of cosmic and street level heroes. And then, of course, the Hulk, who is the Hulk. You know, he's kind of his own his own guy. Uh, more. We get a, a hodgepodge ad across from that. We get the Heroes World ad. We get some interesting stuff here in Heroes World. We have the uh, Battlestar Galactica toys. We get the Cylon Raider the Colonial Stellar Probe, the Colonial Viper, and the Colonial Scarab. Uh, very, very interesting here. This is, I think, the first time we've seen... We, we've had mention in the bullpen bulletins of Battlestar Galactica. I think this is the first time I've seen any Galactica merchandise. Uh, very nice little ad here with some hand-drawn art of the Galactica and Cylon vehicles. Uh, continuing to flip forward, we get a subscription ad with the, the Hulk holding up a platform, holding a bunch of other Marvel characters above him. Uh, on top, we get, let's see, Spider-Woman, Nova, Daredevil, The Vision, 
uh, Jean Grey, I guess she was, was she Phoenix at this point? Yes, she was Phoenix at this point. Captain America, Iron Man, The Thing, uh, Thor, Spider-Man, Luke Cage, The Black Panther, Ms. Marvel, and Howard the Duck. This being 1978, you know Howard the Duck is there for Marvel. Um, we get the uh, Godzilla-grams. And uh, this is, uh, let's see, there's a, there's a special note where they ask about the... Um, uh, the, the, why there has not been consistent letters pages. And the answer is especially due to that, uh, even though the 95% of the time the letters page has been assembled, typeset and pasted up for the issue. And that, but due to a shift in printing schedules, our printers have been getting the books on the presses without waiting for the letters pages. And they said they've gotten that straightened out and, uh, they hope to continue to see the letters pages going forward. Uh, we got a couple of, uh, uh, praising letters here. And one of them, this, this is from Gregory B. Teed of Stockton, California. He's got uh, a very interesting story. He tells about when he's away at school, I'm guessing in, um, in college, I would guess. He says, when I'm away at school, a small but loyal crowd gathers at my room once a week when I return from the newsstand with the latest batch of comics. And invariably, one week out of each month, some guy will browse at a pile, look up and be with incredul incredulity and say, why on earth did you buy a comic about Godzilla? Rather than try to explain, I tell him to read it. And nobody ever asked twice. I think this is a, a nice letter. Um, and later on, it he actually, he, he, he predicts that it would be great to see some of the Avengers appear out of costume. And he specifically name checks Hank Pym. <laughs> and he says, uh, all right, Greg, knock it off and come clean, huh? You ain't fooling anybody. You're psychic, right? How else to explain you hit the button on the nose forecast of Hank Pym's guest appearance sans superhero suit in number 17. So I thought that, that was nice. And then we get some letter. We get a letter here from Charles Steinbrick of Newark, New Jersey, uh, praising the Mega Monster War, which was, I thought, a really high point for it. And uh, they actually hype in their response to Ken Yano's letter that uh, he also put over the Mega Monsters issues that uh, he goes, they, they tease that Godzilla will appear, will in, appear with Devil Dinosaur. So that is coming up in a couple of issues time, the crossover between Godzilla and Devil Dinosaur, which I've been very much looking forward to. Big fan of Devil Dinosaur, as we have mentioned here on the show as well. And uh, one other letter from John Strickler of Manhattan, Kansas. And uh, again, just just thanking them for uh, a quality book. The the at least the letters they're printing are generally of the format that is like, well, Godzilla's really silly and stupid, but your Marvel comic is really good. So it kind of fits with the perception of Godzilla at this point in the mid seventies or late seventies, I should say, in the United States, that the Toho Daikaijuiga and all of the other Daikaijuiga were essentially trash. There was a huge amount of pushback in like famous monsters and other genre magazines when they ever covered Japanese film uh, that a lot of letter writers would get very upset with them because they did not think that they deserved any merit whatsoever and that they were seen as basically just disposable kids junk. So it's interesting that they kind of follow that pattern. It, it plays out in a much similar way here is that they're down on them for doing Godzilla in the first place. But that said, they think it's a quality book. So at least they made something out of it. So it's interesting to see that. And hopefully we'll get uh, additional letters pages as we round out the rest of the series. I'll get a house ad for Pizzazz featuring Spider-Man. Another subscription service uh, house ad. Oh, we get a full page house, house ad, excuse me, for action, drama, thrills, and much more. Doug Mensch and Mike Zek bring you the hands of Shang-Chi, the master of Kung Fu. So two uh, house ad appearances for Shang-Chi, the master of Kung Fu. I'm, I'm glad this series is finally getting reprinted. For a long time, my understanding was they couldn't reprint it because of the Fu Manchu elements. 
that were licensed and thus Marvel could not reprint them. But um, I want to say in the last couple of months, we've gotten a, uh, uh, or maybe just a solicitation for, I don't know if it's been released yet, a, a, a epic collection of Master of Kung Fu. So very cool on that. Some good Bronze Age action-adventure chopsaki type of stuff. Uh, continuing flip through, we get the bullpen bulletins. And who appears in the bullpen bulletins once again? But, that's right, Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu. So, they clearly were pushing this here, which I think is is really nice. Um, let's see, we talk about the Eagle Awards. Uh, talk about Spectacular Spider-Man featuring uh, Frank Miller. We get uh, a name check of Ms. Marvel, Howard the Duck. So, kind of the, the general going comings and goings here on the, uh, the bullpen bulletins page. And then um, Stan's soapbox is the, um, he talks about the difference between editorial approach between our competitors and Marvel, and basically breaks down to that he always believed that Marvel was writing about real people first and then superheroes second, which is, you know, we've seen this type of uh, column from, uh, from Stan before. Uh, Kiss a Milestone, the four face albums are on the inside back cover. Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Peter Chris, and Ace Freely. And the uh, back cover is Lego Expert Builders. We've seen this before. And then in addition to featuring, you know, uh, Godzilla, this comic also features in a hostess ad, my favorite superhero, the invincible Iron Man. In a comic entitled, An Irresistible Force That Goes a Little Something Like This. This baby will knock over the gates of the Van Ness Mansion easy as an ordinary car knocks over a trash can. Then we knock off the mansion, right boss? But soon, an irresistible force will meet an immovable object. Iron Man's in our way, not for long. High Torque's car and I are evenly matched. Strength won't make the difference. Strategy will. In this case, Hostess Twinkie's case. Hey, thanks! Delicious golden sponge cake! Creamed filling, too! I was just ready for a snack. While you're busy eating those great hostess snack cakes, I've been busy too. I guess that wraps up my career in crime. Maybe we should trade the car for some more Twinkies cakes? You get a big delight in every bite of hostess Twinkies cakes. Yes, Iron Man ready to, to mess some people up, distract them with some hostess Twinkies cakes, and then wrap them up in the wreckage of a car because Iron Man is a boss. That's why. Great seeing Iron Man. Uh, I'm not sure who did the art on this. It does, um, you know, it's got the typical kind of hostess ad look, but Iron Man looks great, resplendent in his classic red and golds. Uh, we only see one shot where we get a real good look at his face. It's in the last panel where he's in a full profile and we see, as I always love, the armor is frowning. Uh, that, it to me, is Iron Man's tra traditional classic look. The armor has to frown. And I was always so happy that they kept that in the first uh, Iron Man feature film, was that the armor appeared to be frowning, like a, a grimace almost. You know, this idea that it was this grim visage of this, uh, that there was no humanity there when Iron Man was in the armor. So this very cool. As an Iron Man fan, always love to see Iron Man make an appearance outside of his own book. So very neat indeed. So uh, that's about all I've got for Godzilla number 19. What did you folks think? Did you like this issue better than I did? Did you find it a little silly? Were you able to buy into it a little more? Email me, Directive at yahoo.com. We'll talk about it here on the show. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back to close out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great. So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. <sighs> Mike... 
There are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! Uh, I guess we should do a trailer. I think we kind of just did. Yeah, but it's missing something. Like you should have added music behind us or something. Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great! So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. (sighs) Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month. The show and the website, www.overlookeddarknight.com, launch in May of 2017. From the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it is time to do a little bit of listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. And there's some other ways you can get in touch with the show via Twitter or Facebook. Uh, just listen to the outro, and that will give you all the information you need if you would like to get in touch. So let's get right into it. Our first email is entitled Rampage, and it comes from Blue Scream. And Blue writes... Any chance you and the mobile HQ will make it to Rampage in the theater? The fandom seems pretty quiet on this one, but I thought it was surprisingly not bad. I might even describe it as good. The kaiju scenes especially were awesome. It's the funnest flick I've seen in the theater since Khan. Uh, Blue, as I mentioned kind of at the top of the show, I did not get an opportunity to see Rampage in the theater, but I do intend to cover it once I do get a chance to see it on home media. I'm glad that uh, that you liked it. Fun is a good a, a adjective I like to hear when it comes to a Daikaiju film like Rampage, where it looks it looks like a lot of fun from the trailer. So I'm glad that it translated to being a fun uh, movie going experience for you. And hopefully I will have a similar reaction to it. Uh, Blue continues. P.S. As long as I'm making unreasonable requests, how about covering Charlton Comics Gorgo? If the titular monster doesn't sell you on the series, the Ditko artwork should. Added bonus, the magazine fell into public domain so you can read it free in full color with ads at the Digital Comic Museum. There have been some quality reprints as well. Now, uh, I absolutely intend to cover the Charlton Gorgo. You may recall uh, last year at some point I had teased that we were becoming a, covering a mystery project with a mystery guest. 
Now that I'm going to say the project was both the film and the comics for Gorgo. Now I'm not going to say who the mystery guest was going to be because it was a scheduling issue is why we didn't get a chance to record it. And I'd still like to do it at some point. So I'm not going to reveal who the mystery guest was going to be. But I think if you think about it, you could probably, you know, use your de detective skills and figure out who I'm referring to. But yes, I have, I think it was, uh, Yo Books put out a very nice hardcover collection of the Steve Ditko Gorgo stuff. It's really very cool. They have a Conga one as well for the Ditko Conga books. And yes, you can find those Gorgo comics online. I like comicbookplus.com for my public domain comics, but yeah, they are very cool. So yes, please um, uh, just hold tight. You will get some Gorgo coverage here on Earth Destruction Directive. Thank you very much for writing in blue. And our next email is entitled, He Really Is a Dum-Dum, and comes from fellow Two True Freak podcaster and good friend of the show, Mr. Gene Hendricks. And Gene writes, Luke, having never read Marvel's Godzilla series, I'm really enjoying hearing about it on every episode of Earth Destruction Directive. One thing struck me in your coverage of issue number 18, though. S.H.I.E.L.D. shrunk Big G down with pin particles, but doesn't know how long the effect will last. So why did they transport him from the western U.S. to New York City? You're telling me that S.H.I.E.L.D. doesn't have any remote facilities in between there? Heck, they could have swept in and taken over Gamma Base if they needed to. I know, it was a plot-driven decision so that we see the sewer rat battle, but it's one thing that makes me cock my head like a dog hearing an odd sound. Kind of like how, in one of my favorite movies, Star Trek The Motion Picture, there are zero Starfleet ships between the Klingon border and Earth? It makes no sense at all, but if it was any other way, the plot couldn't happen. Keep him stomping, Gene. And Gene, of course, is the, uh, he writes the Hammer Strikes Blogcast, Blogcast, Hammer Strikes Blog, and the Hammer Strikes Podcast, which is the Hammer Podcast. Also hosts the Quantum Cast, Anime Freaks, and is generally all around cool dude. So please check out Gene's stuff. Now, Gene, my, two of my favorite words in the English language are plot, plot contrivance. contrivance. And that is why so much happens in all the stuff we watch, whether it's genre or not, is plot contrivance. Because otherwise, as you say, we wouldn't have a story. So why didn't they take him someplace else? Why didn't they lock him in something a little more secure than a canary cage, basically, is what they have him in before he escapes? There's a lot of blame to go around uh, in S.H.I.E.L.D.'s handling of the entire Godzilla situation. So uh, I'll be waiting patiently with bated breath for the inquest from the uh, higher-ups of the federal government in the Marvel Universe. Um, you know, just wait for that in... Uh, you know, uh, Marvel Criminal Procedures Court issue number 13, and he, you know, waiting for that any time now. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely, you're right. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's because comics, right? That's kind of how we explain this stuff away. Thank you very much for writing in, Gene. Now, uh, this email from Gene empties out our email sack. This is a situation we have not been in in quite a while. I have no emails in reserve right now, so it's a perfect opportunity if you would like to hear your feedback read on the show, please send me an email, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I cover all feedback here on the show and would very much like to hear from you guys. Do you like uh, what's going on in Marvel Godzilla? Do you have any thoughts about Tokyo SOS? Maybe something we've done uh, previously or something you'd like to see uh, in the future? Just send me a line and we'll get it taken care of. Speaking of the future, what are we covering next? This is the point in the show we have to look forward, as always. And we are getting kind of into the dog days of summer. And I figured, really, it's summer, it's hot, it's warm. You know, what are we going to do? Let's cover something a little summery. So we're going all the way back 
1967, and we are going to cover Son of Godzilla. Yes, the most tropical of the South Seas Islands movies from the, the Godzilla series. It's a little bit of summer fun on Soul Gel Island with Godzilla and Minya and Kamakuras and Kuomonga. You can't beat it. Uh, it should be a fun, fun one. This, this is one that's hard to find on DVD, but if you search on archive.org, you can find it. Uh, a little hat tip to, uh, everyone who sent that in to me. Uh, I have my VHS that I'll probably break out because that's how I roll, I guess. We'll also be covering the next issue of Marvel Comics Godzilla, which is issue number 20, and we'll be guest starring the first family of Marvel Comics, of course, the Fantastic Four. Very much looking forward to that. There's an interesting bit of Fantastic Four stuff going on on this show, just because we covered Obviously, three different appearances of the FF in Shogun Warriors, and now we're going to be covering them in, in Marvel Godzilla as well. So that is very neat. We'll have any new developments on any of the various and sundry Daikaiju-related items that are currently spinning around, uh, both in this country and in uh, overseas. So look forward to that. And, of course, your feedback, as I said, will always be appreciated and always be a part of this show. So I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show. As always, I'd like to remind you, all are welcome here at Earth Destruction Directive, that uh, if you're a giant monster fan or just want to learn more about giant monsters, you are, this show is for you. And never let, uh, never forget that, that I make this show for everybody. So thank you again and keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Oh,
tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF <laughs> moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.